a text about a month ago with John's contact information, his name. And I said, well, that's good. I said, where's he from? He said, Greenville, Ohio. I thought, well, probably good. Probably a good preacher. We won't be able to understand him down here, <laughs> down here in the south. But I was wrong. Uh, we've talked a couple, three times on the phone, and we've some of us has listened to some of these sermons, and, and uh, he just brought an awesome lesson this morning, and we look forward to a sermon today, and we look forward to spending more time with you and getting to know you better, John. Come and speak to us. On all fairness, my mother was a southern girl. She was born in Arkansas. It's my dad who was born in Bowling Green, Ohio, so my dad was up near Michigan. My mother, so my accent isn't quite northern, not quite southern. As a young person, I spent a number of years in Texas growing up, and so we've lived in, uh, my dad was a preacher, so we've been to, lived in Memphis, we've lived in Oklahoma City, we've been all over Ohio, so uh, it's, uh, it's different, but see, the, the thing is, we are united, we're united in Christ, aren't we? We're united through his doctrine, so I may not know the difference between you all and all y'all, but... <laughs> I know the difference between yins. Get up, to, get up north. This changes a little. It, it, it is interesting. Yes, sir. Uh, invitation song is number thirty-two. Number thirty-two. Mark your hymn books. Thirty-two is your invitation song. Because I was in a school system. I was a school administrator for twenty years, and in Ohio, in Ohio, if you go up and call your teacher, ma'am or sir, you get attention. Because that means you think I'm old. That's, I'm not sir, that's my father. You don't say ma'am or sir down here, you get a backhand. <laughs> At least that's what my mama says. Is that true? <laughs> so there are some differences. Uh, the young people as they go through school. Uh, I know my cousins, my, my cousin Rob brought up his, his children. Every time they come, we had, had them around us when they were young. There was always yes sir, yes ma'am, yes sir, yes ma'am. And you get up north, you don't, you don't call anybody, yes sir, yes ma'am, that means you think they're old. And so there's some differences, but I hope that we are united in Christ and, and we're all part of the same family, or at least I, I like to think that we are all part of the same family. So we are going to be talking about willful sin. The reason why we're, we're here, and I may go a little quick because I tend to put more information I have here than I really can get through. Now, you're going to find out that, that when I'm on, on script, you'll have the Clark Kent. That means I'm, I'm looking at my notes, and then when they come off, that's uh, the, uh, my alter ego coming out. That means I get on my soapbox, and I start preaching and getting off task. So when they come off, I guess you start watching out. So, But uh, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 23 uh, through... 29, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Kind of forgot that I had control of this thing here. For he who promised is faithful, and let us consider one another, one another commands. You know, there's over 50. Some people say 52, some people say 59. One another commands. You know, I keep telling you, I, I've told someone here, you know, the worst thing come out of the devil's virus was broadcast. 
because people think they could worship from home. I don't know how you could do a one another command if you're not around one another. And so, folks, we've got to be able to convince those who have not come back since the devil's virus that you cannot just worship on home if you're able-bodied, you need to be here. Now, my father, who happens to have muscular dystrophy, he can't move. One of the best things that come out of devil's virus was broadcast. It's the same side of, it's, it's two different sides of the same coin. But he can't get out. He watches three or four broadcasts. And I'm going to tell you, I, I also like to be enriched. If we didn't do broadcasts, you wouldn't have been able to see any of my sermons. We started that around the same time because that, that's what we, we needed to do. And, and I would tell you this, there at Greenville, we never stopped meeting. We met in each other's homes. Why? Because the government says we can't move at church. Fine, we're going to meet in my home. Anybody wants to come over, come over to my home. We always had people, didn't we, Laura? Old people always came over to the house. And so, folks, there are times when we need to make those decisions. But we get to see one of those one another commands up here. It says, consider what, uh, one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. For if we sin willfully... After we've received the knowledge of grace, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, a fire indignation which will devour the adversaries. One another, or, or anyone who has rejected Moses' law, dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. Old Testament, right? Of how much worse punishment do you suppose will be the thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God under, underfoot? New Testament, right? Counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. Is your Christianity a common thing? And insulted the spirit of grace. Now the reason I have this, because you may have the same question, but that people come up to me every now and then, they say, uh, John, what does it mean? He goes, I don't know this. What this means is willful sin. And so that's why I, I did this sermon. I thought well, I'd share it with you. Because the person was a young person says, I don't understand because isn't all sin willful? I wanted to sin. I mean, I wanted to do these things. And so we're going to look. What does it mean? Because it says there's no longer a sacrifice. And I wanted to be able to do that. Uh, show them so that they can have this understanding. A better understanding. Remove that stumbling block. So that they could be able to have a, 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 a surety of their salvation. Hebrews 10.26 here says, For if we swim... Sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice. On the face of this verse, it seems simple and black and white, doesn't it? Take it out of context, we can skew the meaning, and I want to be very clear. But standing on its own, it raises many questions. Is willful sin, or how about, I'll answer this, if willful sin has no forgiveness, then is that a contradiction to what the Bible has taught us, that God is willing to forgive all sins? Is there a contradiction? We're going to look at that. We've been taught that there's only one unforgivable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Matthew 12, 31 says that every sin will be forgiven except for blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Keep in mind there is a difference between, as we go through the study, there's a difference between can be forgiven and will not be forgiven. An unrepentant sin can be forgiven if the condition of repentance is met, right? 
It will not be forgiven if that condition is not met. If I die without meeting the condition of repentance, that sin's not forgiven, right? We Look at Luke 13 and 3. I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Hebrews' willful sin seems to be talking about a sin that, that cannot be forgiven. So is this a contradiction of thought of all sins can be forgiven? First John chapter 9. Our first John, our first John verse 9. I don't know why I did that. First John verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to do what? Forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this thought process forces us to focus on that word willful. People think of this meaning, meaning on purpose. Did I sin on purpose? If that's the case, isn't all sin willful? Because what do we see that, that James chapter 1 of verse 14 says that sin comes from our own desire. Does the, Lord, does the Lord tempt us? No. What are we tempted by? Things we want. Things that I want. That's what I'm tempted by. But if that's the case, then we're going to have to be perfect our whole life. And after we're saved, we have to never, ever, ever slip or fall. Well, isn't that kind of impossible to do? Romans 3.23, we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, have we not? And so, to interpret this verse, we really need to, to look at it. Because otherwise, what are people going to do? They're going to put off becoming a Christian to the very last minute of their life, thinking that that's how they're going to be able to get around this. Willful sin. I want you to understand something here. There are many people today who say, it's your interpretation. It's my interpretation. They tell about the scriptures. There is nothing more unholy to talk about the scriptures when you talk about your personal interpretations. Because I'm going to tell you, there's one interpretation. When I went to AT&T Data School, when I was at working at the Online Computer Library Center. I went to AT&T, and they talked about messages. There was a person who sends a message. We're talking about simple telephone wires. And you send a message across his wires, and there's a receiver on the other side. Sometimes a receiver doesn't get, doesn't get things, gets things mixed up. I don't like sending texts. Sometimes I've sent texts to my family, and they, they take it the wrong way because they can read things in there. You know, I like to talk face-to-face, especially if it's bad news. But So I've invited people over for... For Thanksgiving times, I can tell you just don't lie. That's the way you read it, the text, right? But let me tell you, who gets to determine what the message means? Is it the receiver or the sender? It's the sender, right? The sender, all authority originates from God the Father, right? And if he's communicating to me through the inspired words of God, there's but one interpretation that's his. And if you have more than one interpretation of a scripture, I promise you that one or both are wrong. One of them has to be wrong because there's only one interpretation of the scriptures. So let's be careful when we rightly divide these these things. So that's what we're going to try to do this morning is is to clarify this. I want you to be assured of your salvation. That's what it says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. And so the first thing we're going to do is we're going to define things. I want to acknowledge that there are some Greek words and Hebrew words that the English language just does not have an exact 
translation for. There are words in the Bible that seems to be one thing, but means something else. That's kind of very rare. But know that this, God is plain and simple when it comes to warning us about the consequences of sin. He's never been more plain and simple in the scriptures when it comes to that subject. He has more, no more been more plain and simple when it comes to the plan of salvation and the consequences thereof. But I want to examine some words. The first one is this, just to give you an idea of what I'm talking about, the word kingdom. The word kingdom is often thought of as a country or territory, right? But uh, some people get confused, thinking that Christ was going to set up his own kingdom, being a physical kingdom here on earth. But that's not what it was. In fact, in John 18, 36, Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. I don't know how you get that mixed up. I don't know where premillennialism comes in when Jesus himself says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my, my disciples would fight, right? But it's not. Matthew 4 and 7, Jesus said his kingdom is at hand. And yet he's at heaven. He's up there, right? He's not with us anymore. He's So where if his kingdom is at hand, it had to have come before he went, right? Mark 9, 1 states the kingdom of God will come before the hearers of that of the gospel of Mark die. Well, I don't know any 2,000-year-old people walking around. So Colossians 1 and 13 tells us, that he's delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. Okay, there are many other verses that basically tell us the same thing. The kingdom, most of the time in your scriptures, means the church. The majority of the time. So this is just kind of an idea. But there's another word, and this is going to be very pertinent to what we're talking about. Perfect. Perfect. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, and verse 8, Especially in, in verse 9 um, and 10, people like to use this to, to show that we no longer have the miraculous gifts today. It says, love never fails. It goes on. I want to just read uh, verse 10. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be gone away with. And it's talking about prophecies and some other things right before this. But I, I know I was, I was told that uh, uh, my time is uh, uh, somewhat uh, limited. I know you got to do some things here. But I reference port D, the word perfect there. That which is perfect will come has a very special meaning. See, people think that we still possess these miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, here today, and we don't. Because that which is perfect has not come yet, they said. They believe perfect means without blemish. They mean perfect means that it has... It has no, nothing wrong with it. It's perfect in the English language. And they believe that that perfect is the second coming of Christ. And since Christ hasn't come back, then they believe that they have these gifts of miraculous gift, power. On face value, you may have somebody read this and go, oh, that kind of makes sense. Unless you understand what the word perfect means. This Greek word, Teleosos, I believe how you pronounce it, is T-E-L. I have that up here. Um, it, I don't. Teleosos, T-E-L-E-I-O-S, that word perfect, means coming to an end or finished. It means simply completed. And since Jesus is eternal, the interpretation can't be correct because Jesus is never finished. 
And so we have to ask, what is it that is completed? What is it that was completed that we no longer need tongues? What was it that was completed that we no longer uh, need these signs and miracles? I hope you know that in Acts 2, 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, by miracles, wonders, and signs, which did through, did through him in your midst, as also that you know. Miracles showed that Jesus was of God. Miracles showed that the apostles were speaking for God. So that which is complete, that's what that perfect means, has come. We no longer do that. So what does that, what do we have that's complete now? I hope you answered this. Now that we have a complete Bible. So not all of these things, but I want to look at this word willful. Okay? This word is, is a Greek word. Um, I don't know if I have. Right here. I don't know how you pronounce that. Hematarnion, whatever you call that. I'm going to let you uh, pronounce. That's that Greek word. But it's not a, it's, they say it's not a momentary excitement. Basically, this is a sin of habit. It is a contempt of God's law. It means a continuous sin. It's a sin that we continually commit without truly repenting. We aren't even trying to repent. I got that from the Gospel Advocate commentaries. Robert Milligan was the one who I'm quoting most of or paraphrasing. I remember my first visit, uh, my first sermon to a visiting congregation when I was young. And I think my, my wife was, what, uh, 23 at the time. And, and we went in there. And after services, they asked us to leave. And they went in there. And we could hear them because they left the microphones on. They disfellowshipped their preacher. See, it seems he was married. He had children. But he also had a homosexual relationship going on. And so the leaders of the congregation and had approached him several times, and they said, you know, you need to repent. You need to stop doing this. And so he seemed to repent, but he continued to go back and do this. He believed, he believed that homosexuality was, homosexuality was a sin. He believed that if they asked for forgiveness from God of the act of homosexuality, he'd be forgiven. Parts of those statements are true, sure. But, it, but between the time he was, he had said, God forgive me, and the next time he says, well, I'm safe. And so then he'd commit that act, and he would immediately after that act was over, he would ask for forgiveness, and he says it was only during that act that he was lost. Hmm. See, he never intended to stop sinning, did he? He never intended to stop the act of homosexuality. That's what this willful, continuous sin in Hebrews 10, 26 is talking about. But it doesn't have to be homosexuality. Many of us have different sins. I'm going to tell you one of the hardest ones, gossip, we talked a little bit about today. There's some people who just cannot give that up and are not willing to give it up. They'll say, God, forgive me when they get caught. But then they go on and they do it again. The commentary goes on to say that if you persist in the willful knowing, disobedient to God's moral law, the door of repentance is shut. And you have before you only the prospect of damnation. Now, 
Earlier in Hebrews, chapter 6, verse 4 through 6, it says it's impossible for those who are once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of the God and the powers of the age to come if they fall away to renew them again to repentance since they shall crucify for themselves the Son of God again and put him to open shame. If we willfully ignore God's will, we will be given over to a debased mind. That's what some interpretations say. What does that mean? We will no longer be able to even distinguish right from wrong. Isn't that what society has done? They're so sinful. God has given many of the people of society over to, to a debased mind. They can't even tell what right and wrong is. Seems to be the main issue today in America, I really think. That the arrogance of willful sinner is that he refuses to repent or even admit that he was wrong. You know, I, I saw a video of this homosexual debating this Christian uh, earlier this week. And that homosexual goes, well, I reject Christianity because what you say is that I have to repent. And he says, yes, we all have to repent. But by saying that you have to repent, you, I would have to admit that I am wrong. That there's something wrong with me and I do not accept that premise. And I said, that's the problem today is that people do not understand that we all fall short. We all sin. We all need to repent. And this man had the arrogance to say, you're trying to say there's something wrong with me. I refuse to accept Christianity on the grounds that you think there's something wrong with me. No, not something wrong with you, but you're doing something wrong. And God says, stop. He said, by the way, you're not even a candidate for baptism until you repent. There's people that we we're tried to study with. I say, unless you have even repented of your sin, you're not even a candidate for baptism. You're not even a candidate to be saved unless you repent first. And if you have been saved and you're continuing in a sin, you are thumbing your nose at the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll get back, get back in the mode, <laughs> Clark Kent mode here. So, in other words, your hearts can be hardened. It don't even feel like you're sinning anymore. You know, there, when I was, was uh, the assistant wrestling coach at Ohio University, we had a great congregation down there. there the foul language in the office. Da, 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 da. Up to that point in time, I could assure you, and I, and I had coached high school wrestling for I don't know how many years, and I don't, in fact, I have a good friend here who coached at UTC, uh, Ethan Reeve, was a head wrestling coach here. He's now an athletic director here at UTC. Still lives here in Chattanooga. But I'll tell you, he's one of those, he's one of those people, too. You've never heard a swear word from him. No, nobody had ever heard a swear word from him. And I was around that. And I remember one of the kids from high school comes up and visited me there at the university. And I said something. He goes, when did you start cussing? I said, I didn't even know I cussed. I'd been around it so much. I knew that was time to leave. I got up, packed my stuff up. And I'm serious. I looked at the, looked at the head coach and I, and I said, uh, I want my paycheck. I got my paycheck. I packed my bags and I left. I knew I was in the wrong place. And it took a young man to point that out to me. Folks, when we're around sin so much, sometimes we get so used to it that it just slips right in. We can't let that happen. It's that willful sin. Now, I want to go on to context because proper hermeneutics or proper Understanding the scriptures, study scriptures says we've got to look at the context. The definition 
There's only one part. The chapter starts out by talking about the old law and continues about Christ fulfilling that law and that Christ sacrifices stress and it enters these, uh, the, uh, the pertinent text in verse 19 that frames out the context of the reading. What is this? There's no other place, basically, to turn to Christ for hope of salvation. The only place you can turn to to be saved is Christ. We heard in one of the Psalms today, was it was that salvation is found in the Lord, right? Psalm 3. It means there's no salvation found outside of Christ, but that also means there's no salvation found outside the church. And that's what's the key here. For when we were baptized into Christ, Galatians 3.27, I don't know where we're at in this slide. Galatians 3.27, we're baptized into Christ. We put him on. That word in Galatians 3.27 literally means to wrap. It's like putting on a suit. I have Christ completely enveloped me when I'm baptized into Christ. Which is kind of ironic because you've got to be immersed, right? I'm completely enveloped in the Christ. I am now a member of the church. I've been added to church. Acts chapter 2, verse 47. I hope everybody knows that. Being in Christ and being in the church is the same thing. Biblically. And the immediate context of a willful sin follows this concept in verse 24-25. Look at Hebrews 24 and 20-24. Let's consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves as a manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much more as you see the day approaching. Notice he's saying that since we can turn to no other but Christ and his church, that we need to be together. We need to assemble together. We can't do it from home. And I'm going to tell you, I believe that there are some things where you're providentially hindered. I think my father's one of those examples. That's an exception. He can't move. You'd have to have two or three people pick him up, put him in an ambulance and bring him. And so he watches online. I think God understands that. He takes his Lord's Supper there online with those people. He not only watches me where I'm at, he watches three other different congregations. He probably gets more churching than most of us do. And so I think there are a few exceptions to this. But generally speaking, if you're able to get to church and you don't, that's a problem. Because it says, the, the, the look, the immediate context is church attendance. Right before willful sin, it's talking about church attendance. So we don't want to be presumptuous and feel that we know better than God. There are those who make a habit of missing church, isn't aren't there? There are people who make a habit of missing church. And they show no signs of repentance. Hebrews 10 26. So we've already read, forsaking the assembly, and it goes right into the very next verse. If we sin willfully after we receive the knowledge of truth, there are no longer remains a sacrifice for our sins. The idea is if we continually refuse to worship God and assemble with fellowships Fellow saints, we are refusing to turn to the church and thus refusing to turn to Christ. That's what this verse is saying. You cannot deny it. It is very clear. Refusing to turn to Christ and his bride, the church, leaves you nowhere else to turn. Where else can you turn but to Christ? If you're not turning to his church, where do you turn? If you don't turn to Christ, you're certainly doomed. When you leave the church, or when you leave the church, you leave Christ. When you neglect the church, you neglect Christ. 
When you forsake the church assembly, you forsake Christ. You are rejecting the very sacrifice that Christ gave you when you are forsaking the assembly. It's your decision to no longer receive the blood sanctification. So the real question is, who does one turn to after rejecting Christ? Who can save us after this? If you refuse to repent, if you refuse to assemble, if you refuse to, to be with other saints, you cannot fulfill those, those 50 plus one another commandments. You have to be around one another to do it. We're to do all of God's commands, are we not? And it should, so this should show you the importance that God has put on the church and the importance that God has put on the fellowship with the saints and gathering together for worship. You know, there's love one another commands, John 13, 34, bear one another's burdens, Galatians 6, 2, confessing to one another, James 5 and 16. How can you do this if you never come to one another? You can't. You simply can't. Furthermore, the same thing that brings us to worship on Sunday morning should bring us here on Wednesday evening. Same thing. We want, should want to be around each other. We should want that fellowship. We should want the blessings of being around each other. Missing the assembling may not prevent you from going to heaven. For instance, like my father, he's sick. But it's a dangerous road to travel, isn't it? One foot in, one foot out. I tried to do that rafting. It didn't work very well, by the way. I ended up under the boat. And you know what? The guy says, look for the words in Braille underneath the raft when I was whitewater rafting. He says, that will save you. So I, I, was, I didn't know what to do. I was anxious for air. And I reached up and I started feeling for the word. I'm not even blind. I couldn't read Braille anyway. I'm looking for the words. And next thing you know, going hand over hand, I found myself out from the side of the boat and they pulled me back in. I'm going to tell you this. If you find yourself outside the safety of the church, look for the words written on the bottom of the boat. Not literally. Look for the words. Whose words? The words that will judge you. They'll bring you back in the boat. And some Christian that's still sitting in here will grab you by that life preserver and they'll pull you back up and they'll set you back in that boat. That's what we do. But you can't do it unless you're here. Right? You can't do it unless you give us a chance. We've got to get out from underneath there. We've got to get out from underneath those, those things. And I, I got just a couple minutes. So it isn't a matter of if we can repent. It's of a matter of that we won't repent. That's what it means. There are many who have not humbled themselves. They won't even admit that they're doing wrong. Repentance is but one requirement of salvation. Baptism is another. You know, there's a lot of misunderstandings about, about that in, in, our, in our lesson. I, hopefully, I haven't missed any points that brought things together and I started preaching outside the text a little bit. But you will... But what I will tell you is this. One of the misconceptions about baptism is that it's something that you do. It's not something you do. It's something God does. It's something God does. You obey the gospel by reenacting 
death, burial, and resurrection and baptism. But you have, you, you're not doing anything miraculous. God takes away those sins. You did nothing to earn that except being obedient. And so I know it's time for us to go. And so I want to tell you this. There may be one or more of you who haven't done that. Repentance, by the way, is a prerequisite. If, you haven't, if you're not willing to repent, you need, you, need to talk, you need to think about things. We have all fallen short. Isn't that what Paul told us? We all fall short. And so there would only be one thing else to hold you up because another prerequisite is we must make that great confession of salvation. Two different kinds of confession. The confession we're talking about here is that Jesus in Acts chapter 8, the same one the Ethiopian made, that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is God. And when we make that confession, then we can be eligible for baptism. Very quickly, Hebrews 26, the willful sin is a specific sin. It's a continuous sin. It's a refusal to be it's an unrepentant sin. I refuse to repent. It's habitual. It's specifically talking about forsaking the assembly in that text. It's a rejection of Christ. And so I want you to be, I want you to understand, I didn't write this. It's all Bible. Things you must do to be saved. We've already talked about those things. And so I'll let you have it. The lesson is yours. There's one or more of you who have not uh, obeyed the gospel. Or there may be other needs. There may be something you need prayers for. I want you to come forward. Have a, have a seat at the pew up here at front as we stand and sing this song of encouragement.